Hi everyone, welcome to my channel Anarchy for Freedom, India's home for conspiracy research and free thinking. Today I'm joined probably by my uh, all-time favorite researchers and uh, content creators, which is none other than James Corbett. Uh, he recently just interviewed me last week on my piece on uh, the conflicts of interest in India's health system. And uh, initially that was supposed to be me interviewing him, but uh, he like he had an interest in inclinations since the beginning to interview on, me on my piece. So we thought we'll do that first and then I'll kind of do something with him that I wanted to so that I could get you guys in India exposed to the brilliant work that he's been doing abroad and the beacon that he's been for the truth movement overall, I would say. So, hi, James. Thank, thank you so much for coming on. And I think this is the first time you're speaking to like an Indian audience. Uh, probably, yeah. I don't think I've been interviewed by an Indian outlet before, so my Hindi is a bit rushed, rusty. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We have a lot of people who speak in English out here, but if, if you see it on my channel, I mainly do Hindi content because that's that's typically what the masses are listening to and i i think i alluded to this in the last interview as well but the people who are in the cities i mean this is what we've observed in the last two years of the pandemic that it's the people who are the most indoctrinated out here who are living in high-rise uh, posh buildings in the you know in the urban centers who tend to be the most brainwashed so it's it takes much less effort to speak in hindi and to to convince people who aren't that brainwashed, who aren't watching CNN and the mainstream media. Like yeah. we have our own variant of the mainstream media out here. right? Yeah, and that makes total sense to me. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've, I mean, it's, it's been much easier to connect with the larger nation as a whole because I can speak in English and probably connect with, say, certain parts of Mumbai and Bangalore and Delhi and stuff. But there's, India is really massive. There's a whole lot of people in the country who mainly speak in Hindi. So that's why speaking in Hindi has been so effective. I'm also planning to start like an English variant of my channel so that I can probably keep the international people updated with what's going on because we're doing a lot of stuff out here from legal cases to organizing people. I mean, this is totally new territory for India. We've had no awareness about the new world order since the last, say, a couple of years. And uh, in that kind of context, I think it's a big achievement for us that we recently held some protests where I think in Mumbai, we had the biggest turnout that we ever had which is almost like 2000 people. So we are growing slowly and steadily. Uh, so yeah, that's the goal, man. Like we, we want to uh, make- uh, If and when you start your English sub-channel, I will be the first subscriber there because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I do have an interest in what's going on in India. I just don't have any particular access to that. And I certainly, I don't speak Hindi and I don't, I don't have a lot of contacts in India, but I am fascinated by what's going on in India. I think it's an important part of the overall global agenda. And I think a lot of things are rolled out there first. Great, man. That that gives me a lot of, I would say, uh, an interest to start it faster. So I, I definitely will get to that. Uh, so yeah, man, James, if we can just start off, I want to ask you certain things about your work and, uh, you know, how you go about doing things. Uh, you've been practically my all-time favorite. I mean, I've been into conspiracy research for the last, uh, say, seven years. That, that's when I first woke up in college. And I've explored many authors. I've read a whole ton of books on these subjects. And uh, I mean, I, I still like really, really uh, look forward to every video that you make because it's so well cited and it's so well referenced. And uh, I mean, this is a problem I've, I've noticed personally in the last two years in the conspiracy movement that there are a lot of uh, claims that have been made. And I mean, this is a problem that's always existed. I've, I've seen a couple of your episodes that you've dedicated just to say uh, dismantling some of the things we commonly say but aren't true I, I do remember watching one of those so what's what's your process i mean ever since you started uh, what would you recommend the process should be for 
for researchers, especially the people who are just waking up right now, because I mean, to be honest, I can understand everyone's really paranoid because they've just been like uh, <laughs> their bubbles have been bursted suddenly after being asleep for you know probably half their lives. So I can understand why people tend to get so paranoid and run away with random posts from blogs and stuff and don't tend to. But what what would be your wisdom or insight on people as to how they should be conducting research and how they should be thinking about uh, spreading this information? You know, it's a good question. And in some ways it goes to the psychology of the people who are listening to this and or producing this content and their own motivations behind doing so. And I think back, back 20 years ago, it was pretty unproblematic. There was a mainstream media cultural discourse that took place through the old dinosaur media outlets, the newspapers, the television, the radio, everyone saw that and read that and those framed the conversations. So you had millions, billions of people around the world, ultimately all having essentially tightly controlled conversations around certain ideas. And within that, you have all types and flavors of people with all their different ideas and all their levels of intelligence and understanding and depth of research, etc. Now that the independent media has grown so much over the past couple of decades, and now we have expanded that, that window, now we're starting to see all of the same types of people who were part of that mainstream bubble are now finding their way into the independent media bubble <laughs> to the extent that that exists. And I guess that's good. Yes, we want more people having these conversations and opening their minds, but people will bring with them a lot of the same ideas and mindsets that they had in the old paradigm into the new paradigm. So I think there's still a lot of people who, okay, not everyone's a researcher at heart. Not everyone really wants to be spending all their time researching and digging up information. That is something that actually energizes and motivates me. So that's, that's really my primary focus. Um, but I know a lot of people aren't that inclined like that. They're looking for, at the very best, just to get information in its purest form, something that they can use in their lives. That's great. So other people are really just looking for entertainment. They just want something to you know watch while they're munching their popcorn. So I guess people really have to be quite honest with themselves about what they're looking for and why and what they're willing to put in in order to get something out of it. Um, so I, I'll, I'll start by speaking to the researchers in the crowd, few and far between as they may be, but people who are actually interested in getting their hands dirty in the process of digging up information. Um, if I was if I was being smart and trying to sell a brand and create a mystique around what I do and who I am, I would start saying, oh, you know, well, you have to know the right people and have special connections and know secret, secret places to access information. But I'm not smart like that, or at least I don't do that. I'm not trying to manipulate people into uh, thinking I'm some sort of guru. I really want to demystify what it is I do because I'm really, I'm, I cannot stress this enough. I do not have any secret connections. I do not have any, you know, backdoor, whoa, I have the secret access to some secret. No, everything that I do is really just stuff that I can do by searching from the comfort of my living room. Yay. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really, really although I, if I, if I just interrupt you for a second in, in the, all your time of putting this work out, there have been no insiders or people in like uh, good positions. I mean, good people who've got in touch with you. 
I, yes, but only only the people that you see that I'm interviewing, etc. There, okay. There's no like special people feeding me information behind the scenes or anything like that. Got it. Um, which is good. I, I, I don't want to be close to the corridors of power in that sense, um, because that's mm. where things start to get genuinely dangerous. That's another yeah, of the yeah. questions I often mm. get in this work. Aren't you afraid? Aren't aren't people after you and trying to get you? Uh, not generally, because I I I don't have any power other than the audience that I've accrued over the years um, that I'm able to speak to now, I guess that's my power in those terms, but still relatively small on the bigger scale of things. My, but I, I'm fine with that. I, I want to fly under that radar to the extent that's possible while continuing to do my research and get information out to masses of people. That sounds like a win-win for me. Um, all of that is to say that what, what do I do? How do I, how do I go about my process? How do I find the information? Um, uh, it, it's, kind of like dancing about architecture. It's hard to explain in this form. So in fact, at the uh, the Greater Reset activation uh, just last week, I actually did a live on-air demonstration. I took a bunch of questions that I received. Hey, James, what do you know about this? Can you look up this? Da, 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 da. And I just went through them one by one and showed exactly with a screen share. I showed exactly how I would go start researching information and start trying to find out what's good and what's bad. So people can see that i don't think they've posted that up uh that was live streamed and now they're posting up each day as separate videos so as we're recording this i don't think day five which was the day that i was on i don't think it's been posted yet but it will be presumably and when it is i'll also share it on my channel so people can see but long story short it's a process of just knowing how to use a search engine uh is a good start actually and uh, that sounds simple perhaps, but I realize a lot of people don't really know how to use search engines and what they're looking for. And, and then once you actually are able to search for specific information and you get a bunch of results, well, what ones do you want to look at and why? And there's a lot of choices that go into that. And it always differs on what you're researching. I know, Johan, given the type of research you've done, I know you know about this, but I know a lot of people out there don't. So, well, here's a site that says this, and here's a site that says that. And how do I know? Um, you have to cross-correlate. You have to see if there's only one website in the world that's reporting this thing that no one else is reporting on and you've never heard of this website before you might want to be suspicious about that until you can verify it somewhere else you might want to look at the dates involved well this was reported in 2009 but then this is being reported in 2017 or you know there's so many different factors that go into it but it's a question of never taking anything at face value at first glance. You always have to dig deeper and always try to get as close to source documents as possible. Um, it's great to hear someone summarizing something or mm. see a quote from something. But if you can actually take that quote and then search for that and find the actual document that it comes from so you can see the context of it yep. and start fitting it in. Uh, it's, it's actually, it is kind of, in a way, it's like building a, a building up from the, the ground with bricks. And you can accumulate a lot of bricks, uh, pieces of information, but they're just bricks. It's not until you start putting them together and, and seeing, oh, this goes here and that goes there and this, oh, and then it creates this. And then you step back and you can see the building that's been constructed. That is essentially what research is like. So it's always extremely important for me, at least, I don't know, I can't speak to everyone's process, but for me, it's important to um, to, uh, I'm always looking at news and scanning the news feeds and looking at research. Wait, 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 what? J James Corbett looks at the news. I thought all mainstream media was fake, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. 
Yeah, exactly right. Because again, the the impulse for some people might literally be, well, it was reported on CNN, so it's not true. Well, so, no, why, 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 I, don't I wish... people, why don't you tell people why that line of thinking is really well, I, I wish it were that simple. I wish it was like that because that would be so easy. Yes, everything that they that said in this outlet is wrong and everything that said in this outlet is right. So just read this outlet. But that is clearly not how it works because actually, uh, I would say most of the facts that are reported in the mainstream media, most of the time are factually true. Usually, there are some that are complete, total, outright, 100% lies. But that's I, I, not I can most... hear many people in the audience thinking James Corbett is a shill. He's a control of <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so much more insidious than that because the, the most effective lie isn't to state something that's factually false and then just say it and then everyone can see, oh, well, that's that's totally wrong. No, no, no. The most effective lie is to say something that's that factually true but putting it in a context mm. or taking it out of a context so that it doesn't have any meaning, it doesn't piece together, or that you put a certain spin on it so it looks a certain way as opposed to another way. So yes, I do get information from mainstream reporting as well as independent reporting, and I, you have to triangulate that. But um, for me, it's incredibly important to to not, as I'm going through it, I, I save every article that I'm reading that's of any value anyway, mm. that has pieces of information, I save it to a folder that I have. And I have subfolders of uh, right. geopolitics and uh, history, science, and all sorts of different categories. And then I, I put it in there. And who knows? I don't know how that's going to sort out. But five years from now, when I'm doing a report on Bulgaria, I can go into my Bulgaria subfolder and go, okay, here's yeah. what I know about Bulgaria. And is there anything in there I can use? And generally there is. And also, the way my mind works, I generally, most of the time, I, I can remember, oh, yeah, I read something about Bulgaria five years ago, and then I can look it up and find that information. So it's incredibly important to, to accumulate those, the bricks, so that you know that you can then start packing them together into some sort of uh, building. Thanks, James. That's very insightful. So uh, how would you recommend researchers go about the current landscape? Because you, you're talking about search engines. But if someone was to go on Google and put in keywords right now, they're mainly going to get back mainstream sources. And for researchers like us, where we want to report on primary source material or specifically when we're just, I mean, even for my legal research, Google's like the best place because I'm trying to look at what the state has done or what the state has said or, you know, things influential people have come and said in the media. So for things like that, I mean, it's, it's a perfect resource because it easily gives you, I mean, if, especially if you're looking for like uh, WHO documents or mainstream, you know, Indian health ministry documents and stuff, Google's the best place to go. But to find our kind of information, we have to use different kind of search engines as well as, you know, in the current landscape, bookmark websites and everything. So how do you juggle between both? Uh, yeah, that's an, a really important question, actually, because I think the, the answer that people want to hear, again, the answer people want to hear is everything MSM says is false and everything independent media says is true. But that's not true. Um, and again, the, the answer people want to this is never use Google. It's, it's, the, it's totally wrong on everything. It's, it'll only give you false results. And th this engine over here will get, only give you true results. And again, as you know, that's not true. And I've encountered this over and over. I never, ever, ever start my searching on Google, at least not 99.9% .9 of the time. There might be what I can't even think of the last time I've ever started on Google. I'll start on something like a DuckDuckGo if I'm just doing a general search. But there, I, I encounter this a lot. There are times when I search 
And uh, I use quotation mark searches all the time, exact phrases in quotation marks. So it'll search for that exact text. And I, I there are many, many times I've tried that on DuckDuckGo and StartPage and all these other search engines and cannot find the document that I know exists. Go over to Google, it's right there, first result. So, uh, you know, they have the secret sauce, right? Yeah. As you would expect from the NSA, I'm sure they, they worked long and hard on their algorithms. Uh, oh, wait, no, the Google has nothing to do with the NSA. Um, but uh, here's, here's the principle that I extract from that. When you're doing research, I mean, generally, yes, in your general day-to-day -day life, please do not use Google or give them your traffic or your data to the extent possible. But when you are doing research for a specific purpose, use the tool that works. When it works, while it works, for the extent that it works, if it works for this particular search or this particular item in this particular time, you know, use it. Uh, it is a tool. And uh, that actually also applies uh, not just to search, search engines, but something like uh, the Wayback Machine, which, again, I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. If you can't, uh, a document has been scrubbed or it's gone down the memory hole, and you go to the Wayback Machine and you can find the, the archived save page of it and you can see it. Um, and I, I use that all the time in my research and I continue to use it because I now have like 8 million links in the archives of CorbettReport.com, probably 7 million of which are broken by now, right? Um, so when someone alerts me to one of those, I'll, I'll always just go and the first thing I'll do is search way back and see if I can find a way back copy of what I was referring to. Um, but every time I talk about that or do that or show that or even mention that on air, I there's always someone in the comments who say, Wayback Machine scrubs things and they, they can't be trusted and you shouldn't trust. It's not that I'm putting trust in the Wayback Machine. That has nothing to do with what is happening here. It's This is a tool and at this particular moment in time, that thing that I'm looking for is available on the Wayback Machine. So I'm going to link to that. And by the way, also, if I don't have it saved already, I will save it at that point so that I do have it saved locally so that I don't have to worry if it gets scrubbed from the Wayback Machine. But that's the point, it's a tool. And yes, they have taken down things from the Wayback Machine in the past because of pressure and fact checking and whatever. And don't, yeah, do not rely on them and do not expect they will always be there. But if it works, use it, it's a tool. As you said, yeah, I mean, we use whatever tools we have at our disposal when it works, right? So this is just one thing and all the all the tools that we have overall. Also, uh, I think some people would, of course, be wondering, because uh, they have a hard time with memory and they, they can't, like, when, when they're trying to talk to someone and convince someone, they can't just pout off things. But, I mean, people like us who've been in this for years, it's relatively easy for us. So, I mean, I have my answer, but... Uh, What's your secret sauce? Do you, do you engage in any kind of ketosis? Do you take, uh, I mean, any kind of nootropics for your mind? I mean, how are, how are you so sharp when it comes to uh, remembering things? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I've got this new formulation of super... No, no. I, <laughs> I should start selling some sort of brain force power vitamin pill or something, shouldn't I? <laughs> no, uh, the truth is absolutely not. I do not rely on any of that stuff. I was blessed enough, cursed enough, I don't know, take your pick, to be born with the type of uh, mind that I can recall facts and names and dates and places and things, which was always great in my schooling days. Mm. I, I was generally a good student because I could remember these things without trying too hard. It's, I don't think that's something that really, I mean, it's a, it, it's like a, a, some people are good at sports, some people are good at 
auto mechanics some people are good at remembering names and dates so anyway it doesn't it's, i don't think it's anything special but i i don't have any specific special plan for it but the one thing i would say is like anything else it's a memory muscle and if you don't flex the muscle you're not going to grow that yeah. you're not going to grow so uh, the fact that I'm constantly talking about this stuff and constantly going over it and constantly bringing up similar things and and going through these points in my head and then talking about it and then writing about it and then making podcasts about it. And it means that certain things are drilled into my memory. I couldn't forget them if I tried. And so if you that's a good point. If you are trying to spread this information to others, you should do your best to know what you're talking about. At the very least, um, practice. You know, the first time you try to articulate something, it might come out as a garbled mess and you don't remember anything. But the 8,000th time you try, you'll be a lot better at it. So keep trying. I've noticed people want things very easy. It's like they come in from the mainstream world and they're just entering. I mean, especially in India, I can say this because most people that have woken up to the, the new world order, great reset agenda have done so since the pandemic started. Because I have, I have a reference point. Like, I mean, when I started out, it was a really handful, like tiny, tiny, tiny number of people. Probably some people I, I had on my, like, I almost knew everyone in the space was doing anything about this. And I could, I could count the serious people on my hand. So all, most of the awakening that's happened out here with respect to this has happened in the last two years. And people just getting into this, as you were alluding to earlier, they just, I mean, they want to extrapolate their mainstream worldview onto the, the truth-seeking movement, so to say. And they're all used to just watching media or used to listening to what their school or college professors told them and just regurgitating it. But uh, I think what we are trying to practice is to teach people how to think for themselves and to pursue the truth, which is uh, really, I, I don't see it happening for most of the people who listen to not necessarily you or me because we tend to put out views that draw our kind of audiences as well but especially with people who tend to make things a little bit more sensationalist like people just have a tendency to listen to them and just spout without actually thinking for themselves or doing you know more kind of wetting so have you noticed that in, in people as well okay. yeah of course absolutely and as i say as more and more people start finding podcasts and other things i mean when i started this in 2007 what's a podcast but now everyone knows what podcasts are everyone's listening so you are going to get more people who are much less invested in actually you know research and that sort of thing and just want entertainment so that's going to be reflected um and then the types of people who come in to fill that demand are mm. going to be the types of people who will supply that kind of sensationalist entertainment so there you go they can be happy with each other i guess i mean i'm not here judging in judgment of people people want what they want and i'm not here to tell them how to run their lives um but it is certainly it's it's it could be a temptation i guess if i measured my success based on the numbers that I get from various metrics of how many people are viewing this or that video, or if I cared about that side of it, I, I'm sure I would have a long time ago gone the much more sensationalist route. And it was something that I, I, I had to consciously confront very, very early on uh, when I was just starting all of this, because I I mean, the corporate report was, I don't know, what, what is it? What, what am I going to do? So as I was first starting it, I remember, for example, back in 2007, when I started my YouTube channel, uh, back at that time, people might remember videos were limited to 10 minutes and the exact middle of the video 
was the video thumbnail, the image that you see before you click on the video. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, that's a perfect opportunity. Just put a, you know, a woman in a bikini or something in the exact middle of the video. And then the rest of the video is talking about 9-11 or whatever it is, right? And hey, I'll trick people into clicking. And I, I had that thought and then I immediately thought, no, <laughs> no, I don't think the way to get people interested in truth is to lie to them, <laughs> to get them in the door, right? Or to do that kind of sense. That's going to turn more people really? off. It's not going to win in the end. It might get me more clicks at, for you know that, that time, but it's not going to be a, I'm not interested in this for one month. I'm interested in this for a decade or 50 years or whatever it is, right? So you, you I hit had the to nail totally. Early. You hit the nail totally on the head, man, with uh, what you just said about like you you can't really spread truths by say misleading people in some way. But this is exactly what I've seen. I mean, more than the last five years, I've seen this in the last two years, and I I specifically like have put off a lot of people in my own community uh, for for being loud about certain things, which are very kind of cherished in the alt media like the i mean some people really strongly believe that the virus doesn't exist and i mean i tend to take a totally contrary stand to that because i i do have a background in biochemistry and medicine so i mean that that's where i come from but uh, what would be i would say like according to you what have been the most detrimental claims the conspiracy movement has made in the last one and a half years if you have any on the top of your mind that you'd like to share uh yeah um I mean, the one that I, I explicitly talked about last year was the uh, in Hopium, which was uh, a brief history of Hopium, where I was looking at the Q hmm. Trump thing that yeah, happened yeah, over yeah, the yeah. past five years that I think has been extremely detrimental, specifically because it's exactly the uh, the type of people that could have would have been energized to have been dealing with the problems that we're seeing right now. Um, were diverted and were safely kept to the side for at least a few years. Some of them still there, some of them waiting, holding their breath, waiting for Trump 2024 so they can do it again. After he comes out saying the vaccine is the greatest achievement of mankind and uh, yeah, I got my booster. Oh, don't, oh, don't boo. Come on. You know, it's good. Uh, all this nonsense. And then I get people saying oh, that video of Trump saying the, it's the greatest achievement of all kind. That, that isn't Trump. <laughs> like, what is that some sort of computer generated <laughs> fake trump right i mean it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier um that uh, and the worst part about that for me is that i know that was just sort of the the test run of that and that will be more and more and more what we see going out is the manipulation this the synthetic manipulation and creation of these conspiracies conspiracy theory groups, movements mm. that will be completely directed and controlled so that they go in certain directions. That's what I'm not looking forward to confronting in the coming years. So a lot of people who watch you, I mean, they've, they've kind of, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say a lot, but like some cranks have accused you of being, uh, say, a shill for Mossad or like a Jewish control opposition or something. But I mean, I've, I've seen your work on 9-11. I've, I've seen how much in depth you address the Zionist question. So, I mean, wh why do you think people really believe that? Is it because of that, that video you made that Hitler was not a Rothschild? I typically tend to see people who are, I mean, really against, who gen genuinely have some level of anti-Semitism. I know even that word is really uh, misused today in how it's used to label people who uh, criticize Israel. But there are genuine, like I've seen this in my own personal experience, but there are genuinely some people in our movement who hate Jews. Like I've, I've personally noticed that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, why, why do you think that is? I, I typically tend to see the same kind of people also tend to love Hitler. But uh, I mean, since yeah. uh, you've yeah, read exactly. Calico Wigley yeah. and you've read Anthony Sutton, I mean, it's it's very clear. Right. That no, no, exactly. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's funny, actually, because uh, that uh, Hitler was a Rothschild was this thing that was clipped out of a questions for Corbett that I mm-hmm, did. And I it was posted by somebody else at some point, And then it it took on a life of its own. Um, if people actually go and watch it, they'll see a much more detailed version yeah, of that. Yeah. And the, Hitler was a Rothschild was actually just a claim that was being made by um, May Brussel, which I was putting forward. I was saying, oh, this is something that she was claiming. I wasn't coming definitively down on that. Um, but I do think that uh, the idea that Hitler was some great guy that was championing freedom against the banksters is definitely not reflective of the truth. Um, I And I do point to the work of Sudden and others, and I will have much more to say on that in the coming future, actually. But yeah, I think you're right. Of course, anti-Semitism is this broad brush that's being used to paint all sorts of people anyone who questions anything oh you dare to say that the uh the uh, va- uh marking vaccine uh, unvaccinated people is like marking jews for the holocaust oh how dare you you're anti-semitic on that kind of thing but as you say there are people who genuinely hate jews specifically and uh I, that that really exists and they generally tend to love hitler and are genuine neo-nazis i am <laughs> i'm not on their side so i hope they are against me absolutely um, but as you say, there's a difference between Zionism and pointing out political Zionism and the uh, demonstrable, horrible things that are going on in Israel around that, which I have talked about many, many times in the past and will continue to talk about. And then there's anti-Semitism of I hate Jews and I want and Hitler. Hitler did nothing wrong. He didn't kill any Jews, but he should have that, you know, that sort of sentiment which exists out there. Yeah, yeah. I know that exists. I'm actually comfortable with the fact that I am hated by the anti-Jew crowd because I don't talk, I don't say it's the Jews, say it's the Jews, James. I'm happy to not uh, to be hated by them. But I also, every time I do talk about Israel and the political Zionism and what it has done in Israel, every single time I get some people who say, I can't believe you're so anti-Semitic, James. So (laughs) I'm happy to have both extremes on that spectrum um, being angry at me because I'm going to call it as I see it. And I don't think this is a Jewish conspiracy Mm. and I don't hate people because they are Jews. No, no, no. I look at what people are actually doing and the ideology that is behind it. And I will call that out every time I see it. And it's funny, whenever you give these people examples of how there are many people in power who aren't Jewish, they'll just uh, tend to say that they're crypto-Jewish or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're either crypto-Jews or they're just <laughs> controlled by the Jews, right? And so, you know, whatever, you name anyone and, oh, Gates, he's a crypto-Jew, don't you know? He's like, okay, whatever. This is another thing I, I really love about you and your work, uh, is that you totally hit the nail on the head when it comes to uh, the subject of libertarianism, Austrian economics, because I see a lot of people in the conspiracy movement uh, who don't really have a background in, say, a principal understanding of uh, the way things should work. And whenever they discover these issues, they think these issues are so gigantic and so humongous that that we do need like a good state, you know, and we need our guy and to, to protect us from all this. I think that's the same sentiment that goes behind the Hitler-loving crowd as well, that he was a national socialist, he threw the Rothschilds yeah. out of Germany, yeah. and uh, he did all these good things for the people. So uh, why don't you take us through your political leanings? I mean, I wouldn't even say political, because I, I know you're not really political. Yeah, anti-political, right. Yeah, so why don't, why don't you take us through the yeah. whole process? I'm sure you must have been a statist at some point, and uh, there must have been some point where you really 
transition to say anarcho capitalism or libertarianism so what do you what do you think is wrong with the whole notion that we should have our guy in to kind of uh, run affairs and how would that contrast to your, to your current world view on uh, politics yeah a, a good question you're exactly right i absolutely was a statist and demonstrably so you can go back to the early years of the corporate report and i would do things like you know write your mps everybody and vote third party and that sort of thing i was very much involved in politics as usual because i think we are all born into this system and we all tend to take it at face value until it is pointed out to us maybe this isn't the only way that we can imagine human society working um i i do i certainly understand the point that most people will make well humans are humans and they need leaders and we're structured you know it's the the jordan peterson type of point well hmm. you know you can go back for millions of years and crustaceans have hierarchies so there's always going to be a hierarchy all right okay blah 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 but um having taken that into account i will first of all my political leanings and philosophy and my outlook is not derived from consequentialism i'm not here to i i i do believe that the things that i argue will lead to a better world but that isn't why i argue for them um because i think it goes from a uh, essentialist argument of what is essentially moral what is just what uh, the, is right. the ontological argument like a principle yes exactly the ontological argument so I, I, from that perspective it took me a long time but once i realized oh yeah, the this idea of uh having certain classes of people being able to make and enforce laws on other people simply because some group some arbitrary number of people voted for these people to be in positions of power wait that doesn't seem quite right what is the legitimation of it how do we legitimize authority like that and so once i started to look into that it was the process of gradually what's the the old thing they say what's the difference between a libertarian and and an anarchist uh, about 5 years if you're being honest with yourself something like that right and that was um, pretty much my case yeah. so it was um i remember uh the 2012 presidential race in the US uh, I, it was one of the primaries uh for the republican nomination where uh, most of the people in the circles that I traveled in were very excited about Ron Paul mm. Ron Paul 2012 you know here we go this is going to be great and i remember on the night of the first primary rather than watching the primaries i was uh conducting an interview about anarchism so <laughs> that was the point at which i think you could see oh yeah i'm kind of leaving the uh, statist plantation but since then it's been yeah a decade and and the further away from statism i get the the more i realize i'm truly not i'm not even interested in that political theater that goes on which i think is meant to distract us from the way power really operates which really doesn't have to do with nation state governments or local governments that's not how power really operates in our society and uh i think it's honestly i think it's a stage show that's put on for our benefit mm -hmm. true true so how do you think uh, that contrasts with uh, some practical application because personally i mean i'm a principal anarchist but uh, i've read rothbard and i've read many other people and they weren't necessarily against say getting into politics and using that to get people closer to libertarianism or anarchism like i i know you refer to ron paul out there and i think ron paul also did a great job in getting the message of uh, liberty and the ideas of the libertarians and austrians out out to the general audience and you know making it more appealable in tv i think he's probably the only senator who's gone and grilled the federal reserve at like uh, you know to to audit them and stuff so how do you think that that uh, converts to the practicality because i've noticed that a lot of change i mean just in my perspective i mean you, you could have a different opinion but i i noticed that we have made a lot of change out here 
by using the courts and using that whole process to get in the media. It's not even necessarily so much to win the court case, but just the fact that our cases are being filed and they're being reported and every single hearing that happens, the media at least has to report a little bit about what we're saying, although they're mostly reporting about the, what the state said in court, but at least some of our thing does get out. And uh, we recently filed a petition where we are claiming like a huge compensation, which uh, converts around over a billion dollars or something uh, for this girl who died after vaccination. And one of our national committees, I think last time in the interview, I was talking about the national AFI committee that decides which deaths happen post-vaccination and which don't, that are linked causally to the vaccine. And they did link that girl's death to the vaccine. So we've just filed a case for that and uh, it's gone. I mean, it's really all over the news and, uh, you know, all the influencers are making videos on it. So I've found things like that to be, uh, I mean, very useful, at least for a country where the information is not so widespread and we're using these kind of tricks to get our stuff out. So what would be your perspective on that? Yeah, I am not the type of person who would tell people not to be doing that. Uh, I think you make an important distinction there between principled anarchism, what it is we believe, why we believe it, why we're doing what we do, versus the question of practical application, the strategy, essentially. Mm. And, you know, strategy is a debate that people can and should be having, and you should be thinking about it, and what can I do, and what's the best way to do this, and what will have the most effect. Sure. And there's a lot of room for different opinions on that. And I, yes. I, I, I really see my perspective as to be not one to dissuade people from doing something that they think will have an effect that they can make a difference. Go for yes. it, please. It, hey, if somebody was able to win, you know, elected office and disband the government, <laughs> I wouldn't be saying no. Great, good, you go and do it. Um, but I, I, you know, personally, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, you're right. I mean, people using the political pulpit stage in order to get a message of freedom out to others, people using the court system, which we know is controlled and you know, you're not gonna completely overturn the entire biosecurity agenda with it, but you can have successes at the very least in, as you say, reaching people, getting this information out to others who can see the court battles happening and see some of the rulings. You can make differences at times. It's like the freedom trucker convoy going on right now as we speak in Canada. Hmm. Um, the, the Quebec premier just came out and said, okay, well, you know, that tax we were going to do on the unvaxxed, we're, yeah. we're going to scrap that. It's causing too much division. Is that, Does this mean that it's all over? No, of course not. But it, it is, a, it is a, a, an identifiable thing that has changed in reality as a result of standing up and doing something. I think that's to the to the good. So I'm not I'm not here to dissuade people from acting. Um, but, you know, the strategy, what's the best way to go about it? I, I think that's on a personal level. What who are you? What talents, abilities, resources do you have and how best can you employ them is something that I obviously couldn't de decide for other people. True. I just think that resistance in any form does help. And we're, we're seeing that whether it's legally or whether it's people getting on the streets and just disobe dis disobedience, right? That's what practically we're seeing in many countries, which is why some of these measures are, are getting rolled back in my opinion is because people aren't really protesting to petition anything. They're just coming out and protesting and saying, we're not going to follow your stupid COVID rules or, or whatever that is. So I, I do think that disobedience also aligns with our whole perspective about just uh, rejecting authority and starting to believe in your own conscience. So, I mean, that's a very practical yeah. application. Of course, of so in this context, we should mention Etienne de Laboiti, who wrote the discourse on voluntary servitude 500 years ago, talking about uh, precisely this, the fact so this is the, the baseline from which we can build a movement uh, of, of real political change, that the tyrant can only be a tyrant because we go along with it.
will uh, comply with his orders. And so our 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 role is to not comply. I totally agree with you, man, and second you on that. So, I mean, let's shift gears a little bit now. And uh, I, I wanted to get people who are listening to this exposed to some of your best work. So I know that like a lot of people right now in our movement are really obsessed with COVID and all the intricacies surrounding the COVID narrative, whether that's masks or vaccines or testing or asymptomatic transmission or lockdowns. I mean, take take your pick, right? Like people are really, I mean, and it makes sense, like it's affecting their day-to-day lives. So people want to go and research and find out the truth about these things. But you and I both know that there is a whole, uh, I would say, plethora of things going on behind the scenes that are equally as important that people who are new to this don't really know a lot about. So I wanted to get people exposed to that. So I'll, I'll tell you the best work that I think that, that you've done and probably give people like a, a short rundown on, uh, you know, what it encompasses and why people should go watch it. My first pick obviously would be uh, how and why Big Oil conquered the world. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this was a documentary series that I did in 2015 slash 2017. It's a two-part documentary about, presumably, about big oil. Big oil. It starts to become not so much about uh, oil itself or the petroleum industry. It's about um, power, essentially. And the way to, uh, and in fact, in a quite literal sense, power, energy coming from oil, but also the political power that comes from the monopolization of a key energy resource, which can then be parlayed into monetary power and then into societal power. And that's reflected perfectly in something like the Rockefeller family, which of course became to, to riches based on its uh, uh, control of standard oil, but then parlayed that in the 20th century into banking. And from there, of course, into political and all sorts of other health related and, uh, and everything you can imagine. So that's that's really the, the background, I would say, to COVID, the COVID era and the stuff that people are interested in now. If you do not understand that history, you don't understand what's happening. And the, the very specific linkage there is between uh, the Rockefeller family and the Gates family and what mm. they, they were doing. And uh, I who is Gates, my... Bill Gates documentary from tw- uh, 2020, where I senior um, at, who passed away a few years ago, but he was on the board of uh, the Gates, Bill and Gates, Melinda Gates Foundation, um, said specifically they modeled what they were doing after the Rockefeller family and how the Rockefellers sp- took their massive family wealth and put it into things like transforming the public health space, which the Rockefeller family did in the early 20th century. The Gates Foundation did in the early 21st century. It was an exact template that they were using. That's true, man. So, I mean, that we can see that also practically applying. I, I saw that in my own research into like India's public health system because I saw the Rockefeller Gates footprints all over it. And I mean, it's because of your work that I was able to have a lot of intricacy. I mean, there have been others as well. Like I've read a lot of David Icke books over the years. And I mean, he cited a, a lot of these things as well. So you and Ike have probably been uh, my go-to resources on at least uh, figuring out the, you know, the round table network and how that functions and stuff. Yeah, so I mean, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about the century of enslavement as well? Because I, I think that a lot of people aren't realizing that the economic fallout that's that's going to result soon as a result of all these COVID policies that have taken place. And I really see a lack of understanding of sound money. Uh, and that's where the Austrian perspective also comes in, right? Like people just believe that the state should have a monopoly on the money supply. But uh, when we research the subject, we find out that it's precisely because of that, that 
Like that's one of the main tools through which we are funding our own enslavement. Of course, paying taxes is one of them, but uh, most of the funding we ourselves are doing is going through the the fiat monetary system. So, I mean, give people a short rundown on that as well. Well, you just did a very good job right there. That is essentially what this is about and why it's important. Um, so, I would put this in the context of my own personal awakening, or whatever you want to call it, from two thousand six, where no for me to fall was clearly 911 uh that was the thing that i saw and i saw oh this is a lie clearly we've been lied to this is not changed my life there was another domino there and another one that fell and another one that fell as a result of that so the second domino to fall the second domino to fall for me was the monetary paradigm what you know where does money come from how how did this system get get created and when that one fell all the others started to fall after it because then i realized oh there's a much deeper system and a deeper level of control to all of this and so that's when i started my research now coming into this in 2006 7 uh and listening to a lot of uh presenters at that time it was in the american context and the federal reserve so i i researched that i knew about that that's what i did my documentary on although i think it is brought to every bank member of the bank for internet settlements which is almost every country in the world they all are systems and mechanisms it's different in every place but similar broadly um, but when i started to see that history itself can be put in those monetary terms. What was the monetary base at the time that this uh, historical event was happening? Who funded this particular layer of governmental action? How did how did the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 lead it to American involvement in World War I? And then how did it fund World War II? And then what became of that? And how did that transform the system of government? Once you start to put it in those terms, you start to see this battle between the forces of centralization of monetary control versus people trying to get out of the clutches of the bankers. And um, in that context, that's when when I saw in 2007, 2008, Ron Paul holding those massive rallies with stadiums full of people chanting and the Fed and the Fed. That to me, I was like, wow, this this is a real revolutionary moment. This is what real revolutionary moment looks like. And I know a lot of people wouldn't even recognize that. Mm. A lot of people don't even know what the Federal Reserve is, or at least they didn't at that time. But for those who knew that's what this has been about for hundreds of if not thousands of years really and so um i wanted to put that in at history and put it in context so that people could understand what was going on again it's about the federal reserve but it's obviously about basically the global situation yeah i'm personally doing a lot of work on that right now because i think people are really saturated with the COVID narrative and we need to move forward from that and like make people more aware or at least bring it more into the alt media spotlight as to how, uh, how how we need to get out of our monetary enslavement and also how we can practically stop funding the enemy because that is what yeah. they're doing. I mean, all the people who are going out and holding protests right now, people don't yet realize it completely, but we are totally funding all of this. So, I mean, that's we really have the power and we can... Let me say it it's, a, it's especially important right now because what I see in the next five years, five to ten, but probably more like five, the introduction of central bank digital currencies. It is coming. They are testing let, them. Let they me stop you. Let me stop you on that. We, uh, our finance minister just uh, gave and presented the budget yesterday in parliament. And the announcement that was made is that they are starting uh, a digital rupee, a central bank digital currency from 2023. So uh, you're totally right about that, James. 
I, I, I see it because I follow the CBDC insider and other like places like that, mm. that are documenting this on a daily basis. And Russia just tested one, Iran's testing one, China's already rolling out with theirs. The US just had a, a, a white paper about it. And you see it on a day to day to day to day basis. And you know, it's coming. It's this freight train that's coming down the line. And most people still don't even know what a CBDC is, let alone why this is the this is this is the crowning achievement of the central bank dream of mm. controlling the economy at the most basic level controlling human existence people i don't think have a good understanding of what that means i i'm i'm going to be doing more work on this i hope you are too and everyone Definitely. who has yeah, yeah. understands what will put their energy into this i i do realize the importance of that which is, which is why i kind of brought it up uh, also james uh, why don't you give people uh, like uh, a practical insight into what you are expecting in the entire fiat monetary scene? Because I know I personally know that hyperinflation is coming, but just explain the implications of uh, central bank digital currencies. Like, why are they so dangerous, and what impact would they have on our monetary sovereignty as well as our purchasing power? Well, I'll give you uh, something from the other perspective because I'm in Japan, where for the last 30 years now, since the popping of the 1980s bubble, um, there was a bunch of zombie banks essentially created where they should have gone under, they should have mm. gone bankrupt, but the government kept them afloat. And um, what that has really entailed is 30 years of stagnation in the uh, Japanese economy and almost zero inflation, essentially zero inflation. And the central bank here has been trying to get inflation going and trying to pump money in and buying up the majority of stocks and, and ETFs and other things, trying to get something inflation going. They cannot do it. Um, in Japan, the, the real question is, well, how do we keep blowing up this bubble? What can we continue to do to generate any sort of actual economic activity, I know negative interest rates, right? So there are negative interest rates at certain levels for certain accounts. But I just saw a story the other day here in Japan um, around a former Bank of Japan uh, board member who is currently on uh, some panel for some sort of digital currency. But he's he came out to warn you know, this, if they do a central bank digital currency here in Japan, they're going to be doing it to try to make negative interest rates at the consumer level so that they'll be able to bake it into the, the cake of the CBDC that, yeah, your CBDC is worth 100 yen today. That'll be worth 99 yen tomorrow, right? It'll be worth 98 yen next week into the algorithm of the, the money that they're playing around with. And that will motivate people to spend because you don't you don't want to lose your money. So you'll spend it today. Right. And he was warning about this saying this is a disaster. It's going to erode trust and faith in the currency. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't say. Um, but this is the type of thing that there's so many different things that can be directly controlled by central bank technocrats that weren't possible in previous eras that would be possible with the central bank currency. And I keep bringing this up. I'll continue to bring it up. Augustin Karstens in the 2020 uh, live stream, IMF live stream on cross-border payments. Listen to his speech. Our analysis on CBDC in particular for the use of general, to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC 
is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what cash is. Where he is absolutely delighted to think about and talk about the prospect of what central bankers will be able to do with central bank digital currencies that they couldn't do before. With a $100 bill, you don't know who has it, you don't know where it went, you don't know who, how many hands it crossed over, you don't know, you can't do anything with it, it's just out there in the world. With $100 of CBDC, you will know exactly where it is at every moment and every step along the way of every transaction. You'll be able to see those transactions in real time and you'll be able to stop them from happening if you don't approve of it. Think of the control. It's total control over the monetary system itself. And if somewhere like in Australia, where they were saying recently, you know, you can't travel more than five kilometers from your home. Well, you know, in this world, we could go out with our cash and go further than five kilometers and they won't know, right? Hmm. In that world, they'll be able to turn to program it into your wallet. So if you are GPS shows you're more than five kilometers from your home, sorry, you, you can't buy anything with that. This is total nightmare stuff that's coming. I think even some people in China have been able to survive the, survive the social credit system specifically because of the existence of cash. And once that goes, I mean, they're going to be totally trapped in that system. And that's exactly What's being exported yeah. around the world as well, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I want to bring this up. On that note, I just saw just the other day, uh, it was a New York Times article, of course, because I've talked about this before. They keep bringing China up as, of course, the big, bad, oh, mm. you know, the stupid Chinese communists. Ah, horrible. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? And I saw exactly that about the central bank digital currencies. And what we're, now they're talking about, you know, the, the COVID era restrictions that have been put in and they're going to last longer than COVID guys. The Chinese are going to do it. And they were talking about things like the digital currencies um, that will be able to restrict people's ability to transact. And again, talking about it as if this is some foreign Chinese thing that's only in China without realizing that when you're pointing one finger out, there's the four pointing back at you. And uh, it's, it's just funny once you see that. But yet the New York Times will tell the truth about China in a highly contextual way that it doesn't show the, the bigger picture. Yeah, you did mention in your Gates documentary as well about Gates. I think he was speaking at an IMF conference only and he was talking about uh, why all these transactions going underground is a bad thing and why Aadhaar yeah, would... Yeah, I think uh, it was a Federal Reserve meeting. All right, all right. But I can't remember. But yeah, yes, yeah. It, yeah. And people should look that up because again, absolutely bone chilling what he was talking about. I know, I know. You, can, you can see their intentions when, I mean, especially the, even the IMF clip you mentioned that's been going around. Like people have cut specifically that part you mentioned and it's been so it's been circulating on social media. So I definitely think there's a lot, lot more awareness needed on the subject. So other than these two, James, is there anything like that you would really want uh, Indians to go and watch that would help us to broaden understanding like some other work I mentioned? Because these two are my absolute favorites, but anything else mm. that I missed probably. Um, I don't know if I should or should not recommend my work that I've done on India, because maybe it would seem pretty naive. Because I certainly, as I say, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in India. I've never been to India. I don't have no, sources. No, no, wait, wait, let, let me stop you. I've found you to be more credible and accurate than most of the sources out here. I mean, specifically with uh, my demonetization video I did and my piece on Aadhaar, like the work you did helped me a lot to kind of 
build it up and you know add some more things to that so you do you're, well, outside, very... you're outside the country but you've done a great job at okay well i'm gratified to hear that yeah. um so uh, if people want if they're interested in that just type india into my search bar and you can find some of the reporting i've done on that in in the past um but it, it's of course it's always best to look up the things you are interested in so if anyone has a specific yeah, yeah, yeah. interest type it into my search bar chances are i've done something on it in the past if you want uh sort of the guide on the sidebar of corporatereport.com there is a a, a little um, uh, picture that you can click on called Corbett Report Documentaries, where you can see all the documentaries that I've done. And there's one called The Best of the Corbett Report, which is all sorts of other stuff broken up by history, science, philosophy, politics, what have you. So there's there's a lot to go through. And um, I'm also starting um, every Sunday, I want to post up a flashback video because I have thousands of hours of stuff in my archives that most people never see and don't know it's there. I want to dredge up some of that stuff because I think a lot of the stuff that I do is evergreen. Not all of it. Is, some of it is very specific to news events, but there's a lot of stuff in there that's still relevant today, even if five, 10 years after it was created. Got it, man. I hope that helps people. So, uh, I mean, in passing, just probably two or three questions more. Uh, I've, As you know, I told you last time I was researching the, the Indian billionaires and their connections with the uh, globalist outlets and I specifically found a lot of Indians sitting at the trilateral commission and I know you've interviewed Patrick Wood and you've done a lot of work on technocracy and I mean the transformation of the economic stuff as well uh, so I mean why don't you give a short rundown on uh, what the trilateral commission is really a part of what it was set out to do and maybe tell people a little bit about like what is the future I mean what is the kind of society these technocrats are trying to engineer what does the future look like in say the next 10 years once the if they are able to bring the new world order in what does that world really look like uh, yeah good question uh, have you interviewed patrick wood before i did ask him but he didn't get back to me on that because i did want to interview him on the trial ah, yeah i will i will encourage him to maybe take you up on that offer because i think uh he's he's definitely done work on trilateral commission hmm. since the 1970s he was co-writing with anthony sudden i know i know the trilateral yeah, yeah, he's definitely done work on that. And if I remember correctly, um, his uh, uh, t The Rise of Technocracy, I can't remember which his first book was, but I, I think every trilateral member, when they were mentioned, are in bold le uh, bold letters in the book. So you can tell who's the trilateral. So he's definitely done more work on that than I have over the years. Um, but long story short, it was founded in the 1970s, and I don't remember the exact year, um, but uh, shortly, shortly before Carter came to power, um, it between David Rockefeller essentially got uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski on board. Uh, Brzezinski was a Columbia University professor who had written about the uh, Between Two Ages, um, the Technotronic era, yeah. um, talking about how technology was transforming the political process, etc. And so they started the Trilateral Commission as a way of bringing Europe and North America and East Asia, specifically Japan at that time, although I think they've broadened at this point, but uh, into dialogue on the types of things that essentially what the way I think of it, and I'm sure there are some differences, but I think of it as the Council on Foreign Relations in the US, the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London, different organizations like that in different countries. This is an attempt to create a sort of three-part version of that to bring a wider swath of the globe together. And ultimately, I think the vision is that in line with the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, those types of organizations, which is not about nation states. It is about the global game of control. And it is about entering into regional 
um, pact, regional political groupings that will then ultimately form a mesh that will be a sort of quasi-global governmental, stru governmental structure. I don't think they're going to go for global government right off the bat. I think it's going to be a regional thing, but we see that with the European Union, the European, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, the African Union. Now they're starting to talk about forming a real deal, Latin American Union, etc. I mean, it's it's coming in a lot of different forms. And I think that's one step towards that the creation of that state, um, that, that greater system. To the extent that it is following, following the actual Technocracy Inc. plan, Technocracy Inc. talks about, yes, getting rid of nation states in favor of technates. Um, for example, there will be a North American technate. There's no Canadian or American or Mexican governments. No, you'll form this grouping that's based on uh, the technocratic controllers, the scientists and engineers and people who are smarter than you will be stewarding over the resources of a given geographical area. And the, 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 the basis of that system was that everything was going to be measured, production and consumption was going to be measured in energy. So instead of dollars or yen or pesos or rupees, you would have jewels, jewels of energy that would be assigned to you as a credit by the technate government. And you will be allowed to spend this many jewels of energy. And so I want to buy eggs. Well, how many, how many jewels of energy went into the production of those eggs? I want to buy a chair. How many jewels? Of, and so you get that. And that is essentially the technocratic idea. And now we're starting to see the carbon footprint. Um, numbers that are coming out. And we saw that at uh, COP26 last year in Scotland, where on the menu, look, it says how many, whatever, kilograms of carbon dioxide were emitted in the creation of your meal. And so the, you know, oh, well, now that I see that, now I want to pick the lower one. Pretty soon you won't get the choice of which one to pick. You will have a carbon credit allotment and you will have that. That's all you can spend for the month. That That is coming. That is the sort of longer term vision of this. So that's the long and short of what the technocratic vision is. But um, there's so much more to talk about there. So it's basically universal basic income being handed out as energy credits and then people uh, spending that. And if they don't hold the right opinions or if they don't get their vaccine certificate or if they don't exactly. follow anything, then they just cut off, right? Yeah, the way to envision it is the vaccine pass system combined with a social credit system combined with uh, your central bank digital currency into this idea. Right. And it's going to be the carbon credits, essentially, that you get to live for this month. And it will be turned off if you if you're not a, if you're if you do something no, no, that the technate doesn't like. Got it. So I think, I mean, in your work also recently on the website, you've been focusing a little bit more on geopolitics. And I think you stressed also in a couple of videos recently that people really need to start thinking about this. So what are, I mean, I know you don't have like a magic ball to make predictions and stuff, but uh, practically, I mean, as a researcher, what big events or potential, I mean, COVID-like events do you, do you see happening that the elite could take advantage of in the, in the run up to 2030? I mean, uh, we have the rise of transhumanism going on. I think there could be a major war down the road. You've done a lot of work on that as well. Uh, food shortages. So what, what do you think is practically going to happen in your view in the next couple of years to take this agenda question. forward? Yeah, I do not have the, the crystal ball, but I do have informed speculation. So here's hmm. what I see in the short term. I see a cyber event of some sort being tied in with geopolitical conflict in a way that can be blamed on the geopolitical boogeyman. And in, on that note, just as we're talking here, just in the past couple of days, I've seen a report from the Atlantic Council on 
cord cutting Russian style, talking about how the Russians are doing naval exercises near Ireland right now, and they could use that as a cover to cut global internet cables as a way of uh, taking down communication systems as part of a preparatory bid to invade Ukraine whatever. Um, I also saw Financial Times talking about UK businesses now being warned by the UK government to brace for some sort of Russian uh, cyber security event. So I see a lot of chatter about this. And I again, I don't have the crystal ball, but if I had to bet short term, I think there's going to be some sort of cyber event that they're going to blame probably on Russia or China or the North Koreans or some combination thereof or whatever it is, freedom truckers in Canada, <laughs> whatever the boogeyman of the week is. Mm. Um, so I see that as preparatory to uh, and the next stage of Internet control, scanning or fingerprints or whatever to get on the Internet so that there will be no more anonymity and will we oh this horrible yeah system we've had before of just free access to the internet. Oh, we're going to have to do something about that. A midterm, as in three to five years, I see uh, definitely something on the monetary side of things. I think they'll need events to move us into the CBDC paradigm hmm. and get us prepared for that. So absolutely some sort of inflationary event, um, supply chain crisis, which could be tied into the cyber event. Um, that that that's going to be midterm and then, then long term. So looking 10 years out into the 2030 agenda, I see geopolitical conflict, um, actual hot war as a very real possibility, presumably between the NATO powers and China, Russia, Iran, something along those lines. Thanks, man. That's very insightful. And I think one of the most uh, dangerous things that you mentioned is the uh, tying in of internet passports as well, because I mean, I know that this is something that the elite have really wanted to do for a long time. They've already hijacked the social media landscape. They've already hijacked the search engines and they really want to come for our access to information. I mean, although it's, it's hard for researchers right now, like us to go and scrub information, but I know you've done so many videos on how we can still get access to, to good information as well that have been very helpful for researchers like me, but I know that they want to totally cut that off and their end game is to not let people have access to any perspective that is contrary to the to the mainstream view. We can see that right now, specifically with Joe Rogan as well. I mean, he's not even totally, you know, uh, saying things directly. He, he tends to take a more balanced approach. He will get people from, say, uh, he'll get vaccine skeptics on. He'll get people like Peter Hotters on as well, who I know you've done videos on. So even people like that are under uh, target now. And I think the White House was recently calling for Spotify to, to ban him. So I think that definitely is one of the most dangerous things, along with the, the monetary aspect that you mentioned, the erosion of our, uh, say, money supply, as well as our uh, purchasing power, as well as the limits to our money that we earn, we uh, like ha work hard and earn throughout our own lives. And then these people just ca can come and tell us how we should be spending that money. So I, I definitely think that people need to think about solutions around that. I mean, I know that like whoever influential I've known who has some kind of wealth, I've told them to think about setting up our own internet service provider or something. So do you have any, have you thought about any kind of solution as to how we could circumvent the internet warfare that, that's going to be coming soon? Uh, yes, I have thought about this. I've talked about it a bit. So if people go to corporatereport.com Go to the sidebar, look down at the bottom of the sidebar. There is a Corbett report on IPFS picture that you can click on that will take you to my IPFS backup of my site, which as we're recording is not working properly. I've got to get my site map fixed, but um, it's from April, I think. Um, but at any rate, there is an IPFS backup of the Corbett report that is currently functioning. And at the very least, you can get all of the files. You can listen and watch all of the old videos. Um, 
it, it isn't a, a website like an interactive website where you can log in and leave comments and what have you. It is a completely different protocol, a different network um, that is a peer to peer network using the internet like it's supposed to be used um, to actually connect computers together peer to peer so that things cannot be censored off of IPFS. The only way you could stop something from being on IPFS is to take the whichever nodes are hosting that file uh, offline. And so um, if there are multiple people in multiple places around the world hosting a file, it's going to be up on the network and anyone can access it. So that that is the vision of a decentralized web that can be possible, um, but uh, that requires people who know about it, who are interested in doing that, and who will take the time and effort to actually find out about it. How do I access IPFS? I can't wait. I can't do it through my browser. I can use IPNS through my browser. What's this? It's a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of work to educate people. So I will be doing uh, reports on IPFS uh, on Solutions Watch, my regular weekly series this year, where I'm going to be talking about what is IPFS? How can we use uh, decentralized domain names so that when they take, as they inevitably will, at some point, CorbettReport.com is going to be seized. .com, that's a US top level domain. The US government will undoubtedly take it at some point. How will I ever see James Corbett again? Well, uh, hopefully by that point, there will be a Corbett Report dot crypto or something along those lines um, that will not be censorable. It's not a top level domain that relies on the domain name system, so it will not be seizable. Um, I'll be talking about D-Web and uh, different ways, for example, how to build a simple IPFS website. And hopefully I'll have uh, interviews with people who have done that so I can actually show people what is possible. So there's a lot, there is a lot of work that's being done on this, but most people aren't even thinking about this at this point. And I think, you, you know, given that this is what I see as coming in the near term, I think we need to get up to speed on this, this point specifically. Definitely do. So I think, yeah, I mean, that, that gives people insight. So typically when it comes to the monetary events, I tell people look into gold, look into Bitcoin, look into these kind of alternatives or local, you know, our own currencies and stuff. So I definitely think more people need to start thinking about how we can take uh, some, some level of sovereignty back in the internet domain as well, because, Everything depends on the information we're getting, right? I mean, I, I saw all of this stuff coming a long time back. I saw the supply chain disruptions coming. I saw the censorship, which is why I really like stocked up at home with physical books because I, I don't want to lose access to that information digitally anyway. And I, I mean, I have a total transformative experience when I read books personally. Every single book I read just changes my view on a lot of things. So I, I, I should really finish like my book. Huh? Yeah, no, definitely. You're writing a book? I didn't, I didn't know about that, man. <laughs> I've been, uh, I announced it in 2009. <laughs> it's, it's how is it going? I think I've mentioned, I, I heard you mentioned it like once or twice in videos, but I think that was a very long time back. How, how's that coming along? Jay? It's fine. Uh, I guess I could just stop right now and put out what I have, but I, there's a few more essays that I just want to get finished and into good form. It's a, a collection of essays I'm working on that essentially um, the original vision was, Hey, I talk about history, I talk about philosophy, I talk about science, I talk about politics, I talk about all these things, I should write sort of the overview, an essay on all of these different subjects. And just, I think people will probably more likely read a book of essays than read one long book on one particular subject. I can touch a lot of different things and give people mm. sort of some of the background on this. So that was the original idea. And <laughs> 13 years later, I, I have a pretty good collection of essays, I think, that uh, will definitely help people. Some of them are extremely detailed, lots of research. Some of them are more kind of general for a general audience of people who know nothing about this. 
but uh, I think it'll be a good resource once I get it finished. And um, I was, I, I've been planning for the last couple of years. This is the year. This is the year. And then COVID happens, and <laughs> um, okay, I gotta, I gotta concentrate on this. But uh, hopefully, hopefully this year. Great, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, Jin. I, I would love to read your book definitely because you're. I mean, I really look up to you a lot. So uh, please get that done soon. And uh, I mean, just lastly to close this conversation, let's end on something a little bit more controversial. I would say. I, I know I, I spoke to you about this in the beginning of the interview and you told me some people have asked you about this. And on this subject, I think you had done a, an interview with the guy who runs Skeptico. So I kind oh, of yeah. do, I mean, but that interview was more about bringing in the perspective about the new world order into the whole conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, of course, we're all figuring out things in the year and now, but at least, uh, I mean, so, like for me personally, I think the, the spiritual uh, kind of information or having some kind of deeper sense of connection to a higher power has been really important for me personally in, in doing my work, especially because of the thing you alluded to earlier, right? Like in the beginning of your video that you don't personally see a threat at the level to which uh, you're doing things now. And I, I think you're being very humble about that because I personally think you've made a lot of impact uh, in the world, uh, you know, with, with the kind of information you present. I remember I was watching your interview with Robert Kennedy as well, and he was really praising your work. And I mean, given, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I think you were being really humble about that because you made like great impact and swaying people's minds by producing highly credible, uh, you know, detailed cited videos that are so lacking in alt media. And personally, for me, I think that whole connection to a higher power has been very important for me to keep going because I feel like I have a bigger purpose on this planet. Like we're all here to do these things to, you know, usher in a world of freedom and stuff. So what are your uh, metaphysical views? Are you an atheist or do you have some kind of spiritual leading? If yes, I mean, where do you tend to lean on that subject? Right. No, I, good question. And it's actually funny that I always, always, always get messages from people. I know you're an atheist, James, but da, 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 da. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Where did you where did you hear me say that? Because I, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find me saying that. Um, so I think you come across uh, one... like that because your videos tend to be uh, I mean, but then I mean, people who studied you well enough would know even that's not true because you've taken on skeptics like Shermer and uh, oh, yeah. Dawk Dawkins and people like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But even that is mo mostly on the conspiracy side of things yeah. right i i do think that you would agree with some other things that randy put forth or the, i mean in the in the terms of say psychics or mediums so yeah, yeah i mean sometimes thing. the skeptics are right yeah sometimes yeah. they're wrong like everyone else but yeah. um but uh, the one that comes to mind off the top of my head if people are interested there was a interview that someone did of me several years ago that i think i posted on my site under the title something like uh james corbett on life the universe and everything so type life the universe and everything into my search bar i'm sure you can find it where we talk about these types of subjects but um I, no i am not an atheist and i do not believe in materialism as in oh there's only physical matter and that's it mm. that's the universe and we're just random chemical reactions that happen and spontaneously and will all go away. No, obviously not. No, uh, I think the universe is a creation. It has been created. And uh, this is where I, I don't tend to talk about this because I'm not a spiritual guru. I do not put myself in that position. I do not want people thinking of me as some sort of spiritual leader or anything along those lines. Hmm. Um, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm here to do. And I don't claim to have any special insight into this, but I do believe that the world uh, ha has a creator, that we are not just random happenstance and that, yeah, there is an objective realm, a moral realm of good and evil. And that at base, yes, this is a fight of good versus evil. And 
I don't know how it plays out in the human realm at in our particular time. Uh, who knows how this how this goes? But I know which side of that line I want to be on and what I want to fight for. I want to fight for life and creation and abundance and the the beauty of this world. That's what I why I do what I do. And I know that there's there there is a higher power and there is something that uh, operates through us. So um, what that is. I, I grew up in a Christian household. That's the way I conceptualize this, but hmm. I, I don't think that I have the answers to those questions. And I don't try to, certainly don't try to force those ideas on other people, but that's that's who I am. That's where I come from. Dude, this is something I've noticed, man. The people who tend to be really well-read in a lot of areas, they tend to have a lot of humbleness because we kind of realize that there's always, I mean, there's so much more depth to knowledge. And it's typically the people who've done very shallow base level research who act like they know it all and who have the strongest opinions. And I, I just think people will learn through experience. It's not something we can teach them, but the more they kind of spend time and doing their own research, they, they will figure this out. And I really appreciate your humbleness as with, with the depth of knowledge you have on this subject. I think it should act as an inspiration for some people who act like they know it all, James. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, but I'll just take like two more minutes and ask you your quick takes on two controversial topics. One of them uh, is extraterrestrials and the other one is veganism. If you can just give us a quick take on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's do the bingo card of controversial topics. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, do you have a question in particular or should I just expound? Uh, mainly, I think if, if I could ask you about veganism, uh, do, do you think uh, w what's your perspective on say animal rights? And do you think that it's 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 moral to not eat animals? Uh, yeah, I'm not a vegan. Um, I do eat meat. Um, I, I respect the vegan sort of where they're coming from and what the, they believe. Uh, I don't know if it is ultimately consistent because you are going to eat life, living mm. matter at some point in some way. So you draw the line. Okay, it's, it has a face. It's sentient. Okay, and and or not sentient. <laughs> well, that was a big claim that I just made. <laughs> I mean, is a dog sentient? Does it know it exists? I I don't know. I mean, whatever. I I don't eat dog, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so I yeah I get it, and I'm not certainly not going to. If people, if that's the way they live their life, that's fine. Um, just personally, I, I as I say, uh, I, I did actually a questions for Corbett in which I talked about this. Uh, I wonder if you search vegan on my site, if that'll come up. But I at, think at I any have rate, seen it. It, I, it was a response to Larkin's video or something like that. I, it I'm not might sure. have been. Yeah. At any rate, um, I made the point at that time that I think there is an uh, a, a deep, deeply disconcerting and off-putting relationship that we have to food in this industrialized, mechanized grocery store, supermarket kind of culture that we live in, where people have become so detached from mm. the food that they eat, that if, yeah, how many people are willing, let alone able to go out and butcher a hog or whatever it is in order to eat that thing? Would you do that? And could you do that? And if not, should you be eating that? I mean, is that something that, you know, if you're not even able to do that, maybe there is some sort of deep moral question that you should be answering. But um, and I made reference at the time to uh, the uh, the scene from uh, Dances with Wolves where Kevin Costner, you know, he's, they've just slaughtered the bison or whatever and they pull out its heart and he's got to eat the heart. And it's like, you know, OK, I'm going to do it. All right. Uh, but there, there's that connection. I, we killed this thing. We are going to consume it now. It is part of us. And there's some sort of connection there on, a, on an almost spiritual level that we obviously do not have when you're just mm. going to the store to buy something from the supermarket. So, yeah, I 100 percent I, I understand and I'm in, in accord with that 
level of discomfort. But personally, I do eat meat and I, 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 I fish at any rate. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, on the same level of going out and slaughtering hogs, but at any rate, I, I have killed and consumed flesh. Yeah, I'm, tot- I'm totally with, with you on that. I, I, mean, I personally tend to come at it from a more health perspective because I, mean, I work at a clinic where we deal with patients. So I, like, and I've been a vegan in the past as, as well for like a very long period of time for a year. So through personal experience, through my own deep research into the field of nutrition science, I, I think that animal food is like really important for, for us to function. And I know a lot of people in the crowd would kind of uh, have a disagreement with that. But yeah, that's, that's been another kind of one of my contentions with, with the movement because a lot of people tend to get divided either between the virus existing or not existing or I mean, veganism, not veganism, flat earth. And these are like the main three categories i would see yeah and finally what's your take on extraterrestrials do you think that there's another there's a blue beam kind of event that's coming where they're, they're going to like holographically uh, simulate these craft in air and you know use as an as an excuse to bring in world government do you think extraterrestrials ha- have been on the planet like some people claim do you think they exist at all what's what's your take on that well let me see if i can offend pretty much everyone in every sphere of the independent media so let's see i think space exists for one, I think the earth is round. And I think that there, it would be pretty mind boggling given the vastness of the universe that if there were not extraterrestrials, I I think it's more likely than not that there are. I don't have any definitive proof on that. And uh, have they visited earth? Again, I have no good reason to believe I've done so much work into um, looking at government conspiracies that really do exist that I know that Whatever information we get at our level of the power pyramid at the very bottom rung is going to be so heavily uh, polluted by the government agencies that I wouldn't believe any of it. And you get that at times. Um, uh, Someone who's held up in independent media circles to this day, Bill Cooper, Hmm. um, started in the UFO space. He, this whistleblower was talking about, no, there are UFOs and they're hover- covering it up. By the end of his career, he was saying, no, that was that, that was all disinformation. They were telling me disinformation so that I would go out and tell it to other people. And, uh, you know, so he started to see the light on that. But then go back and read um, Behold a Pale Horse. And he's talking about the secret meetings under the ice in Antarctica in the submarine and uh, the aliens that showed him holograms of Jesus being crucified and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, really, this is the guy that people think was the the number one truth teller? I I don't know. Um, But uh, yeah, so I think that that whole space is so polluted that I wouldn't know what to believe in, uh, but I do. Secret, secret space programs and others that um, we can at least see the sort of outer veneer of those enough to know that uh, undoubtedly some of the UFOs, extraterrestrials are cover for military um, inventions and things. And then Bluebeam, uh, Project Bluebeam itself, the actual information we have on that is very sketchy, but something like that undoubtedly exists. And I've done work on that. Um, if people want to see how to fake an alien invasion with one of my podcasts where I talked about in gone through that so that's that's my take uh do i know that aliens exist or do not exist i don't know either way i, I think they probably do Are they visiting earth i'll believe it when i see it dude i, I mean I've, I've really loved this interview because i've i didn't explore your your work on these subjects and i find it fascinating that uh, i've not found a single thing that I, that I disagree with you on i mean especially on the 
whole extraterrestrial question like that's that's been a very deep passion of mine like uh, extraterrestrial research as well as uh, you know frontier science areas i mean and and that's i think skeptico does a really good job of kind of bringing bringing all of that information out and making it very appealing to and uh, taking skeptics head on as well on a lot of lot of the claims and counter claims that are made in there and I, and i like that you you're open to the idea as well as you have some leaning on the subject as well so this has been awesome man i mean thank you so much for giving us so much of your time it's it's been great to pick your brain and then get all of this out of you so thank you so much james anything you want to mention in the end let people know where they can find you and anything else you want to say in closing yeah i think that's basically where i want to leave people corbertport.com as i say anything that we've talked about you can type it in the search bar or you can use the uh, the website to find i'm sure um i've done a lot of work over the last 15 years so i've touched on it in some way in some form um and the really i just hope that my work is the sort of the springboard for people who are interested in research i always 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 try to cite sources and source my links and, and link people to uh, documents so hopefully I, I know i created this website to be the sort of thing that I want to exist in the world. If I wasn't me, I would want to go to the Corbett Report because, oh, you know, he did whatever, big oil, and look at all those links, and I can find the document where this happened or whatever. So that's what I've tried to create, and I hope it's effective. And if there's one other thing that I'd like to plug at this point, it is my ongoing History of Al-Qaeda series, because you, po you point out we need to, you know, it's great that so many people are interested in COVID, but we need to understand different parts of the agenda mm -hmm. and i really do think that we need to understand the whole war on terror paradigm of the past two decades in order to understand the biosecurity paradigm and where that's going and the best way to deconstruct that is to tackle head-on what is al-qaeda where did it come from what did it actually do who was actually behind it and where you know how did they use that story so i've done the first two parts on that it's three and a half hours so far it's going to be a, a third part coming out in the next few months that'll be another couple of hours presumably so it'll be the largest documentary i've ever done and so far i think it's already over whatever it is thirty thousand words or something and uh, can go and script hundreds of references and links lots and lots of info i've spent more time researching this than probably any other particular thing i've ever done so i hope people will check it out uh sorry i should point out that's corbettreport.com al-qaeda a-l-q-a-e-d-a and uh, you can find the transcript, the audio, the video, it's all there for free. So whoever's watching right now in India, I would really recommend, please go and check James out. He's been one of my biggest uh, sources of inspiration as well as guidance when it comes to like me putting out a lot of my own work as well. So if you like my work, you'll definitely like dig his 10 times more because he's, he spent a lot of years at this. He's very well cited. And I mean, he's one of my favorites. So James, again, thank you so much for coming on, man. Pleasure to speak to you today. All right. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Bye.